0: Let's pray. Let's pray together before we begin this sermon. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we know that your word is powerful and that your word is true and that your word gives birth to dead hearts. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit will be working in us even today, whether our hearts are dead or whether our hearts are sleepy. We pray that you would do so to exalt the name of your son. In your name we pray. Amen. I believe there's no right or wrong, but as long as people believe from their hearts, then it's okay. I believe there's no right or wrong, but as long as people believe from their hearts, then it's okay. That's what some gal said to me today as I stopped into uh, our local Chase branch. um, And... You know, She she saw that I was, as I was making deposits that I worked for a church, and so she went ahead and said, oh, so what do you do for the church? I told her I was a pastor. And of course, typically they say, oh, you're so young. <laughs> and then so I just took the opportunity to say, okay, so do you go to church? And uh, she said, no, I go to the Buddhist temple. But then quickly she responded with what she said, I, but I believe that there's no right or wrong, but as long as people believe from their hearts, then it's okay. And this no certainty position, you know, is claimed with such certainty. So the question is, you know, how exactly is one sure, especially if you're believing and holding to something like that? So I just said, OK, you know, it's I figured, uh, you know, I, I'll go ahead and try and establish a conversation with this gal because I probably will see her, you know, every so often. So I just picked up the conversation, you know, normal bank teller customer relations. And I said, OK, so what about the nazis are they right or are they wrong and then so she kind of paused for a second and uh and then i sort of wanted to bring it home a little bit more and she was from some asian background so i said okay what about pol pot killed one to three million people right or wrong she paused again and she said well we say he's wrong And so I gave her a puzzled look, you know, because she just said, as long as people believe from their hearts, whatever they want to, then it's okay. So I gave her a puzzled look and said, well, you know, does Jeremy determine what is right or wrong? And then if Tina, her name was Tina, if Tina says something else is right or wrong, then really everything is okay. I mean, who is to judge? And so she paused again. And then she said, I'm glad I'm not the judge. So in just a few questions, she revealed that her no certainty position uncovered with great certainty that no one is capable of determining truth or right or wrong for themselves. That was certain in this no certainty position. Because while she said with such great confidence there is no right or wrong, she herself was able to say, I actually am not able to determine because I'm not a judge. And so with receipt in hand, I'd already made the deposit. I figured, okay, I'm going to see this girl later. So I just, uh, you know, went ahead and said goodbye and then encouraged her uh, to look into things a little bit more from the Christian perspective. And I want to tell her the next time I see her, you, you know, picking up that conversation, I want to tell her that, you know what? While you may not be the judge, there is one who has revealed himself truly and who is the judge. And in him, we can have certainty. And then there's no certainty position, you know, we actually can bring it to the Bible and determine whether or not we should or should not believe in it. God is the judge, the God of the Bible. The letter that we've been looking at for the last few months, 1 John, was written to a somewhat similar situation, a somewhat similar culture as ours, in that there was a lot of religious plurality. The specific situation was that there were some in the church who had risen in this very young church, risen up amongst their number. um, And they were saying that Jesus was not fully God and not fully man. He was not the son of God come in the flesh. And instead, their Jesus was made to reflect the philosophies of the day. And so these false teachers, they seem to have won many disciples, uh, a number of them, and then when they... were facing sort of uh some roadblocks they went off and started their own false church and so john he wants to anchor them in their faith he wants to calm whatever fears that they might have and he writes to them encouraging them to believe and cling to jesus christ who is true and so we come to the very end of the book of first john And this is, go ahead and turn there if you haven't already, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. This is what it says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Keep yourselves from idols. I hope you picked up from that passage that it's obvious that John here is going after their certainty. And he wants them to be certain in what they already know. So if you're taking notes, this outline, the outline for today is, number one, know that Christians have salvation in the Savior. Of course, I'm going to be repeating these so you don't have to necessarily write them all down right now. Number one, know that Christians have salvation in the savior. Number two, know that Christians have a protector. Number three, know that Christians represent the father. And then number four, know that Christians believe in the true God. And again, I'll go ahead and repeat those on later on. First, know that Christians have salvation in the savior. Look there at verse 13. Keep in mind, he's, he's offering confidence here to this church. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. They possess it and they possess it right then and right there. This is certainty so that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, can you imagine if like again, I've brought this example up a number of times, but imagine if this side of the church started teaching false doctrine and then they eventually take off. And and we are a young church, right? Given in in that time of the first century, you're wondering what is right and what's wrong. What ought to be believed in? Who is the true Jesus Christ? And for some of us, our, our faith might be shaken just a little bit as we see, you know, these 15 people say, you guys actually got it wrong. Jesus isn't fully God and fully man. And so John writes to calm their fears. You have it. You know it. The very things that you've already received, those things, truth, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, those things give you eternal life. It's interesting that John fundamentally bases their confidence in something outside of themselves. So the gal that I talked to, Tina at Chase, right? She's saying confidence comes from in your heart, right? Internally, that's from yourself. But John here, he says he roots their confidence in something outside of themselves. Now, we don't typically think that confidence comes from outside of us. But this is where John starts. He says, if you are shaky in your faith, you look to Jesus. And it's a strange concept, as we touched on briefly a couple of weeks ago. Today, strength of faith or vitality of faith is more tied to some sort of internal resolve. You know, if you just believe enough, then you have faith. But here, John says that strength and vitality of faith is based on an object of reality outside of ourselves so you want confidence he says you start with jesus if you want confidence you start with jesus and as certain as jesus is who he says he is that's how certain salvation is for those who believe as certain as he is that's how certain we have salvation for those of us who have repented and believed so many people think that christianity sort of teaches some sort of blind faith you know blindly believing and even sadly many christians even begin to believe that christianity is about blind faith so go ahead and turn to to hebrews 11 and at times people use this chapter to actually say that christianity is about blind faith but i think it's teaching just the opposite hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 now this is where some christians can tend to get confused if they're not reading this verse in its context it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen okay so there you're just thinking that 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 faith really is just this, this the assurance of things hoped for things you don't really know about things you can't really see and they go and say well look faith is about blind faith But the problem is here in chapter 11, blind faith, this so-called thing, it just doesn't exist. This faith that Hebrews 11 speaks about is all about things that they had already seen. And so it talks about how they had acted upon faith, acted upon the promises of God, the revelation of God. And all those things are the objective reality that God has revealed already. And so when God reveals to Abram that he's going to bless him in these certain ways, that's objective reality. And so then Abraham acts in faith. His actions are rooted in the very promises of God, this object of reality. And it's in those things that we actually can have faith in. Look at there in 39 of verse 11, or sorry, chapter 11 of Hebrews. After listening, all of these people who have acted in faith based on the objective promises of God, he says, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And so even though God had promised these things, the people had been acting in faith, wanting to receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The point is there. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So God had actually entered into space and time and given them realities, promises that they could then root their whole entire faith in ultimately Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel of Jesus. So that's what was rooting this church here that John was writing to the object of reality that God had sent Jesus Christ into the world to die in the place of sinners that's the objective reality that john himself had known about and these people maybe some of them had known about as well or they certainly knew about them but probably had seen at least some of them did so that's what their faith was to be rooted in the fact that god had sent his son to die on the cross for sins so where we should have died and received that just punishment for the for rebelling against god Jesus Christ enters into the world fully God and fully man. He takes on flesh. And that's why John, through the rest of the book, go ahead and read it uh, you know, throughout this, this afternoon, you see there that John is nailing home again and again and again the fact that they can actually have salvation and that they possess it and that anybody who, who asks for forgiveness of the sins receives forgiveness because Jesus Christ died on the cross. That's objective reality that was supposed to give them Assurance and confidence, but there are qualifications to this assurance. Look there in chapter two, verse four of First John. Go ahead to flip back there. Listen to what John writes. He says, "Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him." It's really clear. First John chapter two, verse nine. He says, "Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother." is still in the darkness. So these verses help us figure out whether or not we really follow Jesus Christ. And these are the tests that John sort of brings his readers to. They're sort of like way stations or inspection stations that get us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, which is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. So he brings us to these way stations and it's, and as we examine ourselves, we're supposed to have confidence or we're supposed to question and then help and then pray that that would move us towards Jesus Christ. So do you have right belief? That's what John says. Do you have right belief that Jesus is fully God and fully man? Christ, the son come in the flesh. Another one. He says, look, if you are really Christian, then you will obey Jesus's commands. You obey the king's commands. And then another one. If, if you are really a Christian, then you will love. You love Jesus's brothers. You love other children that God has given birth to. So all of these things are grounded in the real Jesus Christ, objective reality again. So these tests help us to as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13:5, examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. So put yourself through these tests that John provides and check what you believe, check what you live for and also check whom you love. And if you find yourself answering these things positively, according to what John says, then you go on and have assurance. And if then you you are wondering, you know, do I really believe, do I really obey Jesus's commands? And you're sitting there thinking, gosh, you know, I live a life of unrepentant sin and I really don't care sometimes. Then that's supposed to bring conviction in the power of the spirit where you then repent of your sins and then you turn to Jesus Christ, the savior. So those are the tests that we now should be considering for ourselves. So if you find yourself here and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, these tests help you to move towards Christ and to look upon him as the one who can, in fact, save. And he calls you to turn from your sins and believe and to do so now. To do so now. So Christians are to be searching for their salvation because of the reality of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. That's point number one. But Christians can also be confident in their salvation because of what Christ is doing currently, as in right now. He has, in fact, died on the cross and risen from the dead. But even now he's, he's doing certain things to bring salvation to his people. And this is point number two. He says, Christians know that you have a protector. Know that you have a protector. So Jesus not only wins for his children's salvation, but he preserves and protects us For that very salvation and go ahead and look in verse 18 john says we know that anyone born of god does not continue to sin the one who is born of god keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him did you notice there what jesus is called his title he's called the one born of god and that's actually really similar language to what what uh, john calls the christians they too are born of god but his emphasis here is on Jesus's identification with other sinners. He himself, of course, is not, is not sinful and did not sin. But it's his identification with other people. So the one born of God identifies with those born of God. Now, of course, he's not saying that Christians were born of God in the same way that Jesus was. He is more saying something like, Christians have confidence because God, the son who became man takes care of other men that's what he's saying there when he says we know that anyone born of god does not continue to sin the one who has been born of god keeps him safe and he protects us or takes care of us keeping us from a life of unrepentant sin we know that anyone born of god does not continue to sin so there what he's talking about really is a life of unrepentant sin there he's thinking about the person who says uh, I am free to live in sin and I don't need to repent. That's very different than saying something like, you know, I was really angry when someone cut me off on a freeway and I was struggling with, with bitterness and resentment and anger and then I confessed my sin. That's, that's something very different than what John is going after here. He's going after people who do not repent of their sin and they find no ultimate need to see themselves underneath the lordship of Jesus. And they say, I don't really care. I don't really have to. So he's talking about a life of sin. Did you notice from that verse um, who Jesus protects us from? Who does Jesus protect us from in that verse 18? The evil one. So he's saying that the the, the one who lives inside of us, that is Jesus and his spirit, because we know that his own spirit dwells inside of us. He says the the one who lives inside of us helps us resist the one who is outside of us. And there you really see how for us Jesus is. You see see the extent to which Jesus is very much for us. So not only did did he die to win a salvation, but he protects us in it. The salvation that we know now is that salvation that we will know in the future because Jesus is who he says he is. He is the protector and our preserver. You guys know that there is no one more fit, no one more capable to protect us from the devil than he whose very purpose it was to come and destroy the devil's works. Okay, so if you guys feel under, underneath the weight of your sin right now, the question is, are you turning to Jesus who protects you from the evil one? The one who is born of God protects those who are born of God from the devil, from the evil one. 1 John 3, 8. He came to destroy the works of the devil. So he who bled for you, he who died for you, is the same one who continues to protect you. This is an ongoing sense here. And that's supposed to give us confidence. It was supposed to give the church confidence as they saw some of their friends walking away from the faith and thereby showing that they never had the faith to begin with. It is true that the evil one is a strong enemy for man. I mean, but just think about it. Is he a strong enemy for God? So when you read the beginning of Scripture, Genesis, and then the end of Scripture, are there ever any rumblings of retreat on God's side? And does God ever feel threatened throughout, throughout you know, Genesis to Revelation? Any doubt or concern that this battle against the evil one may exhaust all of God's materials and currency? and manpower for war against the devil i mean is there anything like that in scripture the answer is no absolutely not just as the battle has been won on the cross as sin death and satan were defeated so when jesus returns he finally will throw away the key and satan will be destroyed forever and so we can look back at the objective reality of jesus christ on the cross and have great hope and even in the midst of this struggle whether we are seeing our friends leave uh so-called leave the faith or struggle with sin we can look forward to say he will indeed protect me and he is indeed protecting me now so if you're a christian this should give us great confidence god says that he will never let anyone or anything pry you from his grasp so just as he bleeds for his children so he keeps his children and never loses a single one So if you guys are, again, facing that one sin that you just cannot shake, that one sin that just seems to be keeping you down, even whether it be theological, a struggle with belief, I got a friend who says that he believes about 51% of the time. I think he's a genuine believer, but he's plagued oftentimes with with bouts of unbelief. So whether that person is struggling with belief or whether he's struggling with sexual temptation, again... Here the one born of God protects his people. And Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. I do that. And no one is going to snatch them out of my hand. That's confidence, right? He protects his own and those who try to steal his sheep face the fury of his might. He is not just a shepherd, but he is the mighty king. And we can take great confidence in that. Listen to how Martin Luther, who lived in the 16th century, Listen to the way that he put it in this fantastic hymn that he wrote called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He says, in, in, and he had very much had, had an understanding because he was plagued with his own guilt. And so he knew that Satan was sort of chasing him constantly. And this is what he said. And though this world with devil's filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us the prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure one little word shall fell him one little word from the king and satan dies jesus is our protector and he is our preserver But in the passage, you guys notice there that uh, Jesus is not the only one working towards our preservation. Now, that might sound a little funny. But according to the passage from 14 to 17, Jesus is not the only one who works towards our preservation. We play a crucial role in each other's preservation. How is that? Well, we do so in many different ways. John here, he brings up specifically the issue of prayer prayer brings god's protection to the believer now i don't mean that in a name it and claim it way but if you're just looking at the text that is what it says it doesn't mean that we get everything we want to but it does in fact say that god will continue to protect us even if that means that we will certainly face death and then see the resurrection but prayer brings protection to the believer and look there in 14 to 17 and consider the context again In terms of assurance, those who denied Jesus were not to have assurance. You can't have assurance in a Jesus that you do not believe in, right? So he says, friends, we can have assurance. Those of you who are Christians, the natural question for the Christians is, well, if I struggle with what they struggle with, how do I have protection? How do I get help in the midst of my sin? And this is what he says there in 14 to 17. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And then he gets to a practical example. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, that uh, sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So if you look there in 16, he's basically saying, look, if you see church, church, if you see a brother, one of your own who stumbles into sin, you shall lift him up and God will give him life. You shall, you will lift him up and God will give him life. You know, presumes a whole lot of things in that. It presumes, number one, that we actually care. It presumes we actually care, but unfortunately, some intramural sports teams show more care and concern for their own teammates than some church members do for their own fellow church members. Uh, A couple questions here that I need to answer uh, before we get on to more stuff about prayer. When he says that if we ask and God will give him life, I think he means ongoing repentance and continual reliance upon the gospel that ultimately brings resurrection life. That ultimately brings resurrection life. So if one has truly been born again, born of God, he has the Spirit of God inside of him, he no doubt will have assurance from God. His sin is one that does not lead to death. Because he's already been born of God, right? He's genuinely been born of God. He genuinely follows God. And so he's not, his sin is not going to lead to death. His repenting and believing is in, in an ongoing fashion. But then he goes on and says there is such a sin that does lead to final spiritual ruin. What is that? What is the sin that leads to death? I think there he's talking about a, a rejection of God, a constant, persistent rejection of God and his truth. That's what the false teachers did. They rejected the true Jesus Christ, and they're pursuing their own sort of understanding of who this jesus is they do not submit to god's commands they don't love jesus at all but instead they've rejected him and that's the sin that leads to death a persistent rejection of god and his truths so john says i am not saying that he should pray for that and i think there he basically means you can't pray that god would preserve them in life since they don't have life to begin with And uh, a paraphrase, if what I'm saying is correct, is you can't confidently pray for the assurance of salvation of someone who doesn't want salvation in Jesus. That's what he's saying there by, I don't say you should pray for that. You you can't pray for assurance of salvation for someone who does not want salvation in Jesus. Uh, But we know certainly that we should pray for the repentance and belief of people who don't believe. I mean, Jesus did that on the cross. He prayed generally for all these people. Uh, who crucified him he prays father forgive them for they know not what they do so we ought to be praying that people would repent and believe so here what he's talking about is praying that they would have assurance of salvation but that's impossible because they don't have jesus to begin with so as we seek to apply this aspect of our lives uh, aspect of scripture to our lives today we have to realize that prayer plays a huge part in the (coughs) preservation of the person next to you in the pew Your prayer plays a huge part of the preservation of the person sitting next to you in the pew if they are believers. This is a call for us as a church to be on our knees for fellow members, especially if we know that our fellow members are caught in sin and aren't repenting of it. So lifting up your brothers and sisters to God the Father should be instinctual. But unfortunately, this isn't the instinct that we have when dealing with a Christian who sins. And I know this from my own personal experience. You know, if you know a brother or sister who's sinning and you know, okay, I got to counsel them. Oftentimes I find myself praying, you know, Lord, give me the ability to counsel them or the wise words to counsel them. Those are good and biblical things to to ask for. But why is it my first instinct to say, you shall lift him up and God will give him life? First and foremost, that's what we should be doing here. So the temptation that I think many of us experience is we want to, to... fix people up ourselves let's say if we want to give them counsel we want to fix people up ourselves and that's reflected in the way that we pray even or perhaps we see a brother or sister who is caught in a detestable sin our instinct i think is to leave them battered on the ground and we'd rather sort of pass by them staying away far away from them as possible maybe even in self-righteousness saying i can't believe that person did that I can't believe he or she would do something like that. Oh, that's just disgusting. But according to the Bible, we as Christians are not above any temptation. So you can think of the worst temptations possible in, in in your life. We are not above any of those things. And if you think you are, you just wait until those temptations come and your faith will be rocked in a way where you will, in very many ways, be tempted to turn inward and think that jesus does not identify with sinners what is your instinct when you see people caught in sin according to the passage prayer should be our instinct he shall ask you shall lift him up and god will give him life are you asking because god says that he will it's it's not that he says he might but he will give them life in other words that he will in fact deliver those who are truly his children Friends, God is the life protector and sustainer. And the ambulance for the spiritually injured is the prayers of his people. God is the life protector and sustainer. And the ambulance for the spiritually injured is the prayers of his people. So we as fellow believers in Christ, we drag our friends into that ambulance and we go to God. Saying, save him as you are the life sustainer and the life protector. And that's how, we, that's how we lift people up to God. We shall lift them up, and God will give him life. To put this into practice, church, uh, let me encourage you guys to pick up one of these church directories. Um, this is my copy, and here are your copies if you're a member of the church. It's for internal use only. Um, and I encourage you guys to pray through a page of this church membership directory uh, a day. And we begin to, to be praying for people, even though we might not necessarily know them all that well. Ryan Choi, for example, here he is on page two. Now, this is page one, this is page two. Ryan Choi is there. I don't know him all that well. I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying getting to know him. But as I pray through scripture, I can pray for Ryan, those same things that I'm praying for myself, the same things I'm praying for Melanie, the same things I'm praying for my children. I can pray for Ryan. And then if, if I knew that Ryan was ever struggling with any particular sin, then I can lift him up and God will give him life. So let me encourage you guys to pick up a church directory up here and pray through them one page a day. And you can pray that God would grant repentance and life. Repentance and continual reliance upon the gospel that leads to a resurrection life. So as John wraps up his letter, he wants Christians to have certainty of their salvation in Christ. Christ has won for them salvation, and he is protecting them for salvation. And number three, John tells the Christians, no that they know that you are called to represent their father. Look at verse 19. And it might not be immediately clear that this is what he's getting at, but I hope it will be by the end of the point. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So that's the one that Jesus is protecting them from. He says the whole world is under control. But here we have this, this idea where he says, we know, and we see that previously in the passage, we know that we are children of God. Uh, this time, those who are children of God are set, uh, set against the realm of those of the evil one. So he's reminding the Christians here of the fact that those of God are to live and love like God. So those of God, were supposed to live and love like God. So in other places, where in First John, where he talks about the devil or the evil one, John is discouraging wrong living. He discourages wrong living by, of course, encouraging right living and right loving. But in 19, it's his final call, right? He's wrapping up the letter. It's his final call to the children of God to right living. And this is exactly what the, the, the false teachers weren't, uh, weren't per- pursuing. Their hearts were more in fellowship with the world, right? They're embracing the world's will, the world's desires, and the world's purposes. But here he says, look, you are children of God. You have fellowship with him. You embrace his his will, his purposes, his desires. Children of the Father will be like their father. And it's a test of genuine faith. So 1 John 3, 9, "No, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. So here he says, look, as you go on living and battling and holding on to the truth, know that your lineage is of God. And in everything you do, everything you do, you bear the name of the father to the world. There's a strong representational aspect, isn't there, between his children and the father. You know, the children do what the father does. And so when the world looks at you, if you claim yourself to be a Christian, when the world looks at you, they're supposed to see a little bit of the character of God because you're his child. So First Baptist Church, let's remember that in all we do, we say something about God. So let us live and love so as to make the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means to follow this Christ that much clearer to the watching world. So think about your obedience and the, way, the ways in which you go about obeying the Father. Maybe you are reluctant to obey and, and maybe God to you is like this cosmic party pooper who puts a lid on all of your fun. You know, oh, you guys are going to the club again. I want to come. Oh, I can't. I got to wake up early and take my friend to church. Uh, you know, you know what, do, what do your friends make of your God when you react to s- in a way like that? Oh, you know, you guys are having another beer. I want another beer, but then I know I'm going to get drunk and God tells me I'm not supposed to do that. Uh, I mean, God there, he's, he's the God who puts all these burdens on your back. Uh, but by the, way that you, you, by the ways in which you obey God, you end up communicating something like God, God is actually not a loving God who is very much for us. He's our cosmic party pooper that wants to put his thumb on us all the time again and again and again in all these realms of my life. So the way that you love, do you communicate something like that? Or do you communicate something like Jesus is a God who really loves us? And even sometimes when I don't understand why he calls me to do certain things, I know he loves us. And I know that's the best thing for me to do. So, Father, I'm going to submit myself to you because I trust you. You sent your son to die for me, to experience that much pain, to bear the wrath that I deserve. You love me. And even when I don't understand, I'm going to continue to follow. So, Lord Jesus, I submit myself to you, the king. You do what you want, and I will happily obey Friends, pray that the world would see more of the loving, self-sacrificial, delightful God that he is. And that the world would see that even in the ways in which we obey or talk about obedience and the ways in which we love people. So let me encourage you today to think through the, the, the areas of your life, whether it be home, work, or church. And think about how is it that I represent God through my obedience? through living and, living and loving in a way that the Father calls me to. And if you are not a Christian, you're visiting with us today, um, please know that we are flawed people. So we're not going to obey perfectly every single time. But the very fact that we are children of God means that you ought to be able to look at our lives and know a little bit about God. So let me encourage you guys uh, to take the, your Christian friend and put him in a fishbowl and examine his life. Examine my life. And to observe how it is that we reflect our God the Father and how we walk in the same footsteps of our Savior. So watch how we try and love as Christ loved the church. Watch what we do with our money. Watch how we use our free time. Watch how we treat our families. Watch how we try to resolve conflict when we are sinning against one another, right in the midst of that. And watch how we then move towards reconciliation and forgiveness because of the very forgiveness that we have received through Jesus. So get to know us. Get to know your friends. Don't expect perfection, but expect something to be different. And examine that, examine how Jesus Christ and the gospel actually changes people. And I would invite you freely to examine my life if you please. So as John gives his final encouragements to these young churches, he reminds them as Christians that they are to know salvation in the Savior. Know that salvation in the Savior is certain. Protection from the Savior is certain. And that we as his children ought to be representing the Father. And last, he grounds all of that, really his whole entire letter, all of it is grounded in the certainty of the God who is true. Look there in verse 20. This is point number four. No Christian... That God is true. Here we have another we know statement. We know also that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. That's fellowship language. We are in him who is true. Even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So here John ends his letter with what he began with jesus christ the son of god come in the flesh and with all boldness he holds out the truth and the heart of the gospel jesus is who he says he is the son of god come in the flesh and he is in fact the bedrock of christianity which is why it is so important for them to get jesus right and why there is so much at stake for those false teachers who were getting jesus wrong so go ahead and turn to chapter one verses one to four and look how he he, be, he begins the letter listen to the certainty there keep in mind that they were doubting that uh, the god jesus or sorry the god they called him christ the spiritual being christ what they were the false teachers were teaching that this false the spiritual being christ descended upon the man jesus at his baptism and then at his crucifixion the spirit of Je- the spirit of christ went up from the man jesus So it really wasn't God who was born in the flesh, God, the son. And it wasn't really God who died. It was more of like, just like this man. And so he wasn't fully God and fully man. And look how John corrects them there in verse one. That which was from the beginning existed in eternity past, which we have heard. So listen to to all the senses, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked at and which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Friends, Christianity does not boast in a blind faith, and it never has. Christ, the Son of God, entered into space-time history so that people would see him, touch him, hear him, and believe in him. The real God has revealed himself in the flesh, and we can examine evidence. We can check history. We can check the fulfilling of prophecy, and we can have a relationship with him. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. So we can know His person, His character, His will, His ways, His purposes, and His desires. And then we can have fellowship with Him. And in Him alone, there is salvation. Verse 20 says, He is the true God and eternal life. So as we conclude this book, from start to finish, John holds out The genuine from the false. True Christianity from false Christianity. Look at the last verse there. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now that might seem like a strange ending to this type of book. But here I don't think he has physical idols in mind as much as he does the gods carved with their minds and with their hearts. These are idols that exist in their minds and their hearts. And so they're teaching this false Jesus that's the idolatry that is getting at i mean much is at stake here in the truths of jesus which is why he says keep yourselves from idols from pursuing the things that you may want to that god hasn't deemed true ultimately what is at stake is salvation of souls eternal life and the forgiveness of sins right standing with god that is justification all of that is at stake in the person and work of jesus christ let's pray together Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you that you are a God who never lies, who never shades the truth, who is never confused about your own identity, but you're a God who reveals the truth, who speaks true things in Jesus Christ. And when you reveal, you reveal so much that we can, in fact, know the truth, and that we can know Jesus, and that we can be saved and forgiven of our sins and brought into your family and declared righteous before you. All of that through the blood of your son. So, Lord, we thank you that you have moved in objective realities, in space, time, history, and we can know these things for certain. Father, help us believe even in the face of our unbelief. For the sake of your name and for your great truths, we pray these things. Amen.